right, welcome everyone to another episode of the Browns Note Podcast. This is episode 31 of the podcast, week 8, 2015, heading into after a disgusting 24-6 loss to the St. Louis Rams in St. Louis, a game that was marred left and right by, uh, by turnovers, by penalties, by general non-discipline. It was an ugly day. I think anybody that watched that game... To me, that's one of those throw-it-away games because the only thing you need to know is that you need to get a whole lot better at everything you do. And uh, 24 to 6, inexcusable in any scenario, certainly in this game, because quite frankly, you know, a lot of the other numbers would indicate a game that the Browns had every opportunity to win. And, and I mean, to me, the Rams gave them enough time to try and do it, but they just couldn't score the football. They kept handing it back to the Rams, and that can't happen. I mean, this team is certainly not good enough to uh, <laughs> to survive four-plus turnovers and eight billion penalties a game. But we'll get to all of that. This is Ryan Burns coming to you from Dog Pound West in Orange County, California. Joining me, our friend Pete Smith, who you can follow at PeteSmithFS. Uh, and he's doing work at Draft Breakdown and NFL Spin Zone, a couple of which we'll talk about. Pete, how's it going today, man? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Better than, uh, hopefully better than the Browns. Yeah, no kidding, right? Well... And, and, I mean, do you agree with my assessment there? I mean, to me, there wasn't much to talk about out of that game other than, look, you can't turn the ball over, and you can't get penalized that many times, or this team is not good enough. They're going to lose. To me, it felt, I mean, honestly, the minute the Rams picked up that first fumble and ran it in for six points, I thought to myself, it's going to be really hard to win this game because it, this team is not good enough to give the other team an offensive touchdown and survive it. I mean, most of their games have come down to that last play, the one point, three point margin. And when you start the game with something like that and you're this team, you've dug yourself a probably insurmountable hole. There's really only a handful of teams that can afford to give another give the opponent ten points and land. It's it's not like it has been in the past where you've got sort of half the league is pretty good. I mean it Genuinely, about two-thirds of the league are pretty bad, and the Browns are obviously in that group right now. But, again, if you give, it, if you give anyone 10 points and right from the get-go and try to, try to come back, it's, it's an uphill climb. I mean, the only positive you sort of take away from this game was the first-half defense. The first-half defense, you, you sat there and you're watching and you're going, all right, here's some stuff I can sort of – look at it and say this was pretty good. They actually did did a nice job against Gurley and everything, and then the second half comes out, and it's just a complete fall apart as far as that goes. The big plays eat them up, and, and, and it you know goes from bad to worse. And so, I mean, if, if the Browns had managed to come back and win, I think you would, have, you would have looked at the first half of that game and said, man, this is a real genuine building block for the defense, but the fact that they lost, you now look at it as, just the next chapter and what has been, you know, sort of a, a narrative that the Browns defense is bad and there's no hope in sight. You know what? That's a really good point. This was one of the better performances by the defense. I mean, they were still plagued by some of the things that we've talked about on this podcast all season long. I mean, the huge run and and look, Gurley's a talented guy, but to give up that many yards on that few carries, it doesn't really matter how how you get there because ultimately it does damage to your defense. I mean, but like we're saying. Total yards again. They led. They led the game. First downs. They led the game. Time of possession. They led the game. And so they're putting themselves in position to do good things. They're just not finishing on them. So to me, there's a there's a trend there where I think we have to acknowledge that Josh McCown playing even as well as he is 
is not going to just close off drives by themselves by himself. And so their inability to run the ball to me really looms large in that in that red zone area because if you can't push it through for some good yards and if you can't jam it into the end zone, you're stuck doing things like throwing fades to Andrew Hawkins. You're stuck doing things like hoping Gary Barnage has his my God, eighth great game in a row. Um, I mean, six catches for 101 yards. You're not expecting that out of these guys, but they're doing enough to put themselves, put themselves in position to win, but they just don't, they don't have that finishing element really in terms of a drive, in terms of a half, or in terms of a game. You're looking at a team that doesn't, you know, in a lot of respects, doesn't know. They just don't know what it's like to, you know, consistently be able to do that type of stuff, be able to put themselves in position, and then and finish. I mean, that's something as much as people don't, they talk about this losing culture and, and what it takes to change a culture. It's getting in those situations and finally, you know, getting, getting in the mindset where instead of waiting for the other foot to drop, you're waiting for, you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, we can actually, you know, we've been here before. We can actually go out and make a place or we can come back. We can, we can do these things. We've been in this situation before. They don't have that sort of, that bank of uh, mental toughness stored up. I mean, don't, the fact that they're consistently getting in these situations, I think, is a positive. Even though, you know, you're getting you're getting in situations and letting teams win, beat you like the Broncos did, like the Chargers did, like the Raiders did. Uh, and if they can finally break through and start winning games, I think you'll start seeing a little bit of a carryover and, and develop that mental toughness. But right now, you're looking at a team that that just doesn't know what it really means to to win and and embrace. Uh, every opportunity and, and be able to just come back and make those plays. It's it's not an easy thing to learn, and I think that is an understandable uh, source of frustration for fans. But it's just something that it, it's tough when it's not an individual sport where you know basketball, Kobe Bryant or whoever, Kit or LeBron can just will you to victory, or baseball where you're one guy at the plate. You got to have you know the whole team or on offense or defense being able to buy in at the same time and make plays. It's tougher to do that in football. Yeah, you know, I, this was something that Brendan Leister and I talked about last week. Was for me when you're watching a team that is in rebuild or perennial rebuild, as the case may be here, mode. Then the hardest thing for any team to do when it goes from crappy team to good team is to learn how to close, how to finish. And to me, that's that's the ultimate hump that a franchise has to get over. And the Browns just continue to scuffle at the top edge of the up you know, of the incline. And, and so we'll see if they can keep at it. I mean, I think even even with all you've just noted there, to me, it's becoming evident on the defensive side of the ball that they're still just lacking some personnel that they need. But there were a couple of things coming out of this game that I wanted to ask you about that I noted in particular. And I don't know whether they were doing this two weeks ago or three weeks ago or what, but I did see at least a couple of plays where they had a four-man front with Shelton and Jamie Meter as the two down tackles. Did you notice that? I did, and, you know, for the most part, it was actually reasonably effective. And if they want to do that and say, you know, if they want to basically put their chips in the middle and say, throw the ball on us, I, I can't complain uh, with that. I mean, you, if you're the Browns, it's something you basically have to say, we're going to take this away and you're going to have to beat us with something else. So if that's, if that's their... Uh, their plan for doing that, I don't have a problem with it. And, and, and Meter played really well against the Rams. Now, granted, the Rams' offensive line is not very good, as illustrated by Randy Stark's greatest game as a Brown. 
taking advantage of poor Jamon Brown, who's not hmm. a good player. Uh, but the fact is, if you're saying, you know, if the, if the, if the gauntlet was laid down and all these people are saying, well, Todd Gurley's going to run for 200 yards, or he's going to set the rushing record and everything else, you're in that office and you're saying, well, what are we going to do? Let's put, let's, let's, let's put our chips down in the middle and do it. Let's put Danny Shelton and Jamie Meter in there and see if we can't get something positive out of it. And again, in that first half, you saw a lot of positive things. Now, it ultimately didn't last. And I know a lot of people are pointing the finger at Danny Shelton and all this, which is fine and somewhat deserved. But, you know, a bright spot and a guy they found for nothing who's been a nice, nice little piece to this defense and maybe can be something going forward is, is Jamie Meter. He plays well. He plays hard. He does a lot of things. If you want to use that play like a brown mantra, which sounds tacky, but whatever, uh, he, he does it. He's, he, he plays hard, man. He gives everything he has on every play, and he, and he, and he produces. I think the bigger frustration for me uh, is watching Nate Orchard do nothing. And, and, and this consistent frustration, and I understand he's learning, but at the same time, you're, you're, you're taking Barkevius Mingo, and you're saying, here's 12 reps. And I know on two of those 12 reps, I saw him big back-to-back plays, one yep. forcing a false start, and the second one uh, making an impact tackle. So, I mean, there's something that's incredibly frustrating for me watching that, uh, watching a guy who can do the job being taken out for somebody who, at least at this point, can't. Uh, I mean, the other positive, I suppose, is I really – and he's not going to play this week, and that's fine, uh, outside of depth and, the, depth. and the guy, I think, played really well. And, again, he had two really bad back-to-back plays. And if they're spread out over the course of the game, he wouldn't get nearly as much uh, problem and, and, and blame as he did as Pierre Desir. I really like where he's going. And I know oh, yeah. uh, everybody, everybody wants to – the thing I don't like, and it's not his fault, is everything is viewed with Pierre Desir is through the Justin Gilbert lens, which right. isn't fair to Pierre Desir. If you take Justin Gilbert out of the equation, Pierre Desir looks like a great corner who's going to be an up-and-comer who's, who's just getting better by the rep, and you're looking at a guy who looks to be, to me, to be on schedule to be the ultimate replacement for Tremont Williams whenever he goes. A uh, lengthy corner who's really good in terms of his punch and press, He's got the speed to run, and he's got that length where he can just be an un. The receivers, he, I mean, he's he's getting better. So, but if you so take the Justin Gilbert part of this out of it, however frustrated you may be, and certainly I am with Gilbert. I didn't like the pick in the first place. This year, as a fourth round pick, looks like he can be the next big thing for the Browns at that outside corner position. Uh, so you know that's certainly a positive. Me and the other guy I thought played well. Uh, uh, was jo- was Jordan Poyer a guy they got for nothing? Who's not a starter? I, I cannot make that clear enough. He is not a starting player, but he is a good depth player who can play safety and help the slot corner. He is doing ex- he's in the perfect role for him. Uh, but you know, getting I'm happy to have Tayshawn Gibson back this week. But for what he is, Jordan Poyer is a nice player. Yeah, you know, I agree with all that, especially um, especially about Desir. I, I I've been more than pleased with Desir. I, I think given where he came from and the kind of development he has to do from, you know, playing at such a small school to coming into the NFL and and really, I mean, they, they drafted him without any thought that he had to help them right away. I mean, I think they were hoping that, that Gilbert would, but that obviously hasn't worked out. Nevertheless, I've been pleased with how he's played. He's gotten beaten on some plays, but number one, that happens to all corners, even the good ones. And number two, it sure as hell happens to a young guy in his second year uh, going up against good NFL players. And so I I haven't been bothered by any of his mistakes because to me, they're mistakes of, 
learning. They are not mistakes of um, not being able to process the information. They are not mistakes of not being able uh, to maintain technique. They're really just inexperience. And, you know, he looks at sometimes a little bit like Bambi out there, but that athleticism that you're talking about is more than on display. And you can see the game coming. Like you said, he's getting better rep by rep. Each week I've seen him doing things that illustrate a more thorough understanding of what he's looking at and what he's supposed to be doing. So I've been excited by what they're getting out of this year. On the offensive side of the ball, I mean, I'm not sure what to take out of this game, honestly, beyond stop fumbling. And I will say it does highlight to me sort of the continued discussion about Uh, Well, about a number of things. Number one, the penalty flags being thrown in the NFL. But let's set that aside for another day and and focus on the team. Um, The, you know, the the addressing or lack thereof of the wide receiver position in terms of a big dynamic threat. And with Josh Gordon, obviously, in the forever limbo position, um, you know, they did attempt to, quote unquote, address that problem this offseason in two ways. They drafted Vince Maley with a fourth. And they signed Dwayne Bowe to a $9 million guaranteed contract. Neither of those guys, well, for all intents and purposes, neither of those guys is even on the team. Bowe is looking sharp in his, in his dress sweats each week. But um, what's your feeling on kind of how you place the, this is a broad question. How, where do you place sort of the, the lion's share of the responsibility for what appears to be sort of a lack of alignment between what the, what, what the needs are, what the front office wants, and what the coaching staff, at least by virtue of their rostering and playing time decisions, appears to want? Well, for better or worse, you can blame it on a, a base strategy of, of attacking best player available. For all the people who say they love attacking, they always want to get the best player available, when it doesn't work out the way they want it to, this is sort of what happens. So, for example, all reports are they loved Sammy Watkins. I sure did not, but they supposedly loved him. And then they got bowled over by the, the trade offer, which they thankfully took. Uh, and then they moved down and obviously took uh, traded back up to get Gilbert. But by all accounts, they loved him. They loved, uh, they loved all accounts, they loved Brandon Cooks, who has not been very good either. Not a guy I liked either. Uh, they have liked guys. That, that either uh, other guys were better than in their in their mindset, or uh, they were out of position to take. So, for example, uh, as much as it frustrated people uh, to not take a receiver, they they viewed Joel Batonio as a better player uh, than than the options that were there. I'm pretty happy with that decision. Same thing. Like people were sort of annoyed that they didn't take a receiver when they took Chris Kirksey. I like Chris Kirksey. Terrence West. Disastrous uh, result, but I mean, you can't really hate the the talent. They, the talent was obvious; the pick didn't work out. Uh, so, I mean, this is sort of what's happening. They 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 are a best player available uh, looking franchise. Now, the the issue that comes with this is when you end up with Gilbert Manziel, who aren't doing anything, or and then you get Danny Shelton, who's having some issues. Although I think they're correctable. And then people look at Cam Irving and go, well, he can't possibly be the best player available because he's not starting despite the flawed logic in that. So when you get down to it, when uh, their best player available is not a receiver, people sort of get frustrated with it. Uh, now, for me, I don't care about big receiver, small receiver, at least as it's concerned to the outside. 
what I think you can do, and I think the Browns need to do, is you get bigger in the middle. So for last year, the Browns, for all the size they didn't have on the outside, didn't look like a small team. They had Jordan Cameron in the middle. He was a very big target, forced guys, uh, forced mismatches, opened up things on the outside, and when they needed to go up the top, they went to Cameron. So these small guys on the outside get to use their speed, get use technique to get open, be deep threats, however you want to look at it. Would it be nice if, say, Travis Benjamin was uh, 6'5", as opposed to 5'11", sure. But, I mean, the, the, you have to get the talent where you can get it. For example, uh, the kid that uh, a lot of Browns fans are now bitter that they didn't take, uh, that ended up in Seattle, uh, Lockett, would have been crushed if the Browns picked him because he was another short receiver. Well, Never mind the that's fact that's kind of the thing, that. isn't it, Pete? I mean, to me, it's fine. I, I don't... It, but they have no size out there. I mean, it's it's. I'm I'm cool with one of those guys out there. I'm not sure I'm cool with three or four of them at a time. Granted, and and I understand, which is why you and I have sort of agreed uh, that that we like a guy like Laquan, Laquan Treadwell because I think he can do. He can play on the outside, in my opinion. But I also think you could put him in the middle. Yep. And I think you can make him sort of that giant slot player that linebackers and safeties dread. That make that make those guys on the outside look look don't that mitigate their size issue. The problem is when you have Gary Barnage, your only big target, and Gary Barnage just played great. When he's the only guy you have with any size, the Browns look small. Right. Uh, I think I think the Browns were unbelievably disappointed that Jordan Cameron ultimately made the decision to go to Miami. And, and honestly, I think maybe maybe he doesn't these past two weeks, but I think Cameron probably regrets it to a certain extent. But not getting him back. And looking at the situation and going at Rob Hausler and some of these other guys, the team just looks smaller when you don't have that dynamic playmaking threat. Uh, you know, they, they can take up the middle. For example, uh, the New England Patriots have Rob Gronkowski. I don't think anybody looks at those small receivers they have as really small because they have this enormous man child who can just do whatever he wants. So as long as you have size somewhere, uh, they can can make those other guys not look like a, a size issue. It doesn't matter. The problem is now the Browns don't have that guy. <laughs> Nor do the Browns uh, have the have the guy pulling the trigger that makes those little guys a lot more dangerous in New England. You know, I, absolutely. It, yeah, it's a, it's, uh, so, so it's absolutely a something that has to be a target. Now, how they're going to do it? How they're going to view their? Are they going to reconfigure their sort of strategy as far as best player available? I don't know, but. That's sort of, sort of, they've got to get somebody with size. It's just imperative to, to, to balancing with this offense. And that's the thing. It, it all comes back to balance, whether it's how, how much you can run the ball, how much you can pass the ball. Well, it's the same thing in terms of the size of those receivers and things. And I think the other part of this that can help uh, substantially is, is continuing to address that tight end because Jim Dre has been pit yeah. poor uh, at the area he, where he's supposed to be good. Malcolm Johnson sort of struggled. So if they can get more size in the middle, uh, whether that be in the form of a, a big slot receiver, or just a legitimate tight end who can do uh, be pass pass catcher and somebody with size, those are things that are to me that are critical that would help this team a lot, opening up the pass and the running game. Yep, that makes a lot of sense to me. And as they look forward to this game against the Cardinals, who come into Cleveland five and two and looking awfully awfully tough. Um, I mean, they're going to have to do all that and more. As I look at this game, 
this is one of the more obvious to me mismatches across the board that the Browns have on their schedule this year. I, I've I've seen all the Cardinals games now, and they're I mean they're just good. Carson Palmer is playing at as high a level as I've ever seen him, and I would include that really good you know 2005 season he had in Cincinnati. There, I think Palmer's understanding of the game has come a long way since those years. Obviously, Arians works a lot of wonders with a lot of guys, but Palmer's just one of those veteran guys who's seen it all at this point. He's willing to get the ball out of his hands, and they are loaded with weaponry for him to do it. I mean, Larry Fitzgerald is killing people. Michael Floyd's a talented guy. John Brown has been a revelation. Of course, Chris Johnson in the backfield playing like he's in Tennessee a few years back. Not quite the the last gear that he used to have but in terms of effectiveness as a rusher he's doing a hell of a job and and that's to speak nothing of guys that they just haven't had a full usage of yet so when you watch this I don't know how much of the Cardinals you've seen but I'm sure you're aware of their personnel and the kinds of things they do if you're the Browns I mean to me this is a game where you're trying to you're trying to eat up clocks that these guys can't put up touchdown after touchdown on you and on defense it seems to me that what you're doing is keeping everything in front of you because these guys will beat everybody over the top. That's Arian's thing. He's going to get you long. He's not looking to get you in bit by bit. He's going to eventually take chunks out of your ass. What are you trying to do if you're the Browns, and do they really have the personnel to put up a decent fight in this one? Well, the thing that helps the Browns is obviously getting Gibson and Hayden back. I mean, this is this is sort of the week that uh, – of all the, the the this and the Bengals game are the ones where you're sort of like, man, they have to have these guys. Uh, that, that's that's important. The thing that that hurts the Browns is if you can't get pressure on Carson Palmer, he's absolutely going to tear you apart. There's just no if he's just sitting there comfortable, you're going to he's going to throw for three four hundred yards and and look fantastic doing it. He's basically like Josh McCown, although you know he does everything right as opposed to getting in these hot streaks. Uh, where Josh McCown can look great. If that doesn't happen, uh, the Browns are going to just get beaten while uh, Bruce Arians is sort of just picking what he, how he wants to beat them. I mean, you just can't cover forever. They've got too much talent in that respect. And then if they can, you know, use the pass to sort of open up the run, it becomes a real issue. So they've got to be able to manufacture some pressure or they're just going to get beat on that side of the ball. The, the saving grace, I suppose, on the offensive side of the ball is the Cardinals don't have much of a pass rush outside of what's schemed for them. Uh, and then, you know, you'd like to think that the bronze offensive line is smart enough to be able to handle any sort of exotic pressures, although McCown himself needs to do a better job of sort of uh, diagnosing uh, what some, some of the pressure's coming from. So in that respect, McCown should theoretically have time. The problem is then you're looking at that Cardinals secondary, which is really impressive. Uh, and you're looking at where where are they going to win that matchup? Who's going to who's going to sort of step up and, yeah. and make that play? You're looking at Patrick Peterson. You're looking at Tyron Matthew. You're looking at Tony Jefferson. Yeah, and, I, I see that. And I really wonder how that's going to be any different than it was against Denver or St. Louis. And this goes back to what we're saying about the littler wide receivers. You know, again, they're all talented guys, but at the end of the day, the six-two, you know, two hundred plus pound corner is probably going to put hands on those guys and make it awfully difficult for them to get off the line. I mean, why is it going to be different than it's been the past couple of weeks this week? The, the big question I have is, are they going to put somebody like Daniel Buchanan basically just say, you're following Duke Johnson wherever he goes. Right. And at that point, that could be very, very bad. 
for the Browns. Uh, much in the same way, I thought the Broncos were a horrible matchup for the Browns. I don't think the Cardinals uh, are quite on that level just because the, the Broncos could rush the passer all day and did. Right. Uh, but the Cardinals' secondary, just as a pure matchup, uh, is is terrifying. Now, the, the, the advantage is just like the Browns can't cover forever, neither can the Cardinals. So you're hoping that McCown can be smart enough to sort of find openings and make plays. But if you're just looking at it from the standpoint of who are you betting on, <laughs> Carson Palmer with all the time in the world uh, against the Browns talented secondary, uh, who needs, you know, still sort of licking their wounds a little bit, or uh, Josh McCown against the Cardinals secondary, who's playing incredibly well. I mean, you, you don't like what you're looking at. So, I mean, the best thing the Browns can do is, again, the offensive line is playing very well. You've got to hope or, or somehow come up with a different way of trying to manufacture the run game if that's just uh, basically spreading them out to run the ball and not trying to rely on guys who can't block to do it and basically just saying, let's, let's see what our speed can do. Let's trust the five guys up front and take some of those blockers out, force them to spread out and try to run that way. That might be the best way to do it. Uh, the, the one thing that you saw – with uh, is is every week Turbin seems to get more and more yeah, uh, of the load, and he does a great job. I mean, he's he's he just illustrates just how important it is for the Browns to have a running back with vision. He has it. He's patient. He knows how to sort of wait and set up his blocks. And you saw a great example of that on the twenty-two yard run he had last week. So I mean, if the Browns, the Browns' best plan of attack may be simply going basically single back with Robert Turbin. Uh, spreading them out and trying to just attack with those five guys up front and him using his power against sort of a smaller a smaller defense and seeing if they can take advantage. If he can do that, that that's a game changer to me. Now, there's nothing to suggest the Browns are going to suddenly run yeah. for 150 yards, but at the very least, if you can just make them honest to it, I think it makes I think it changes things where if they have to commit somebody like Buchanan or or, or Tony Jefferson to purely trying to stop Robert Turbin and just make them honest. I think it'll open things up, uh, open up some options in the receiving game. And the thing that's been missing uh, in, in a lot of respects is the, is the deep pass, you know, just, just explosive plays. Now, some of that last week is the fact that every time they did it, they'd turn around and fumble the ball, either the, that particular play or the next one. But if they could just get some explosive plays, I think that would help. But so for me, I'm looking at this going, let's take, let's take the guys who aren't doing the job blocking out of the picture. Let Turbin do it. Uh, use, uh, use Duke Johnson the way you've been using Duke Johnson, which is he's good and getting better. And then if you need to, uh, the guy who I think is, is the writing may be on the wall for is Isaiah Colwell, who's getting less and less touches. So if you're, the more comfortable they are with Turbin, the more comfortable Turbin is with the offense, I think that can potentially give them a boost. Is he an answer? I don't think so, but at least it's more respectable. Yeah, he's a little bit better, but I, you know, he's still not the dynamic back that you want, and and it's just it's frustrating that they can't put together, whether by committee or by attempting to make somebody bell cow or whatever, a more threatening run game because it really would make. Josh McCown's life a hell of a lot easier and I know there are those that are still out there talking about the quarterback position as though it's some kind of problem and I just to me it's not even and I know you agree with this it's not even close right now I mean Josh McCown's completing like 67 percent of his passes for almost 
for nearly 300 yards a game, and he's got eight touchdowns and three picks. And people are somehow blaming him for everything that's going on. Now, is he lighting the world on fire? No. Is he Aaron Rodgers reincarnate? No. Did anyone think he was going to be? Whatever you thought he was going to be, I think almost everybody would have to admit he's been better than whatever that was. So over the course of this first you know, seven weeks, I've become more and more frustrated listening to people talk about how somehow Johnny's going to make this better on offense. And it's just not, and I'm not even willing to discuss it. This guy gets on the field, we'll find out. Until then, let's just watch the games and talk about what we actually know about. And so as I look at the offense, I look at, hey, look, they're 12th in the league in total yardage, and yet somehow 23rd in scoring. So when I see that again, that goes back to they're not able to close, they're not very good in the red area. Um, is there is there any kind of a tweak or uh, is, is there something that you have seen in the red zone that you would do specifically differently or is it just they need to keep working the things they do and, and hopefully execute them better? Well, the biggest thing I've seen in the red zone is penalties. They've and, and, That's and a it's really not good point. It's, it's, we've talked about it before, and, but and, and people want to put it on coaching, which is fine. If you want to tell Joe Thomas, a 30-year-old man who's on pace to go to the Hall of Fame, uh, tell, ask Joe Thomas whose fault it is when he gets the snap count wrong and gets a false start. I guarantee you he's not going to tell you it's the coaching's fault. <laughs> but in any case, when we get down in the red zone and we get one of these crippling, and, and, and for the Browns it is legitimately crippling to have a false start penalty and go from first and, you know, first and three to first and eight or, or whatever. You take yourself out of these situations and you, and you, and you just make your you just increase the level of difficulty on a team that can't afford it. That's the biggest thing that's hurting them uh, in terms of in terms of when they're sort of on pace when they're on schedule. I think they do a good job. I think they've been able to use misdirection. I think that they've been able to create opportunities for varnish. Obviously, this is another area where size is not their friend, uh, and then that sort of hurts them. So there's only so much you can do. I think. Some of these things, like, uh, you know, Andrew Hawkins isn't going to play this week, but Taylor Gabriel can sort of do the same thing. Is These are guys that are really good on those whip routes and, and trying to use those to attack. Push your, push your defender inside before going outside is an op- option. Uh, just those types of things. And then Duke Johnson's another weapon that can be here. And then hopefully, and this is the thing, is since Turbin's been here, we haven't really gotten the steam in the red zone. Yeah, this is an opportunity for a 240-pound guy to go in there and, you know, Let's 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 see yeah, if we can't powers win the end of them. Yeah, let's take uh, it for a so, spin. You mentioned you mentioned yeah, spreading them out a little bit. It would be cool to see, in my view, I, I'd like to see them use him a little bit like the Patriots tend to use Legarrette Blunt. I mean, they they now granted the Patriots are offering using Legarrette Blunt to put away a lead, but my point being, where they spread a team out and you're left with little choice but to have undersized guys attempting to tackle the big, strong running back. I'd love to see that in the red zone. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, you know, but these are the things that, that you, you make it difficult to do when you suddenly go yep. you know, back five yards, back ten yards, or whatever it is, and then suddenly your place sheet gets so much smaller because now you're looking at, well, we can't do this, this, and this because we can't afford to, to waste the opportunity. So we've got to go to this, this section of plays where we find the most success and if they don't work, you didn't get the opportunity to really try anything out. You just had to go to sort of, you're at that point, on some power. I'm going to go the plays that we've sort of had the most success with. You don't get to really learn anything. You just hope for the best and try to score. So th- these are the challenges of the face. But I mean, it's just, 
again, we've talked about it. The, yeah. the amount of room for error this offense has is next to nothing. And when you make it more difficult for any number of reasons, and, and some of these penalties have been awful, but the pre-snap ones are easy. You can't, you can't have that. You can't fall start. You can't – the other one that drives me nuts, and this is 100% on coaching, uh, to me, uh, to, is, is the illegal formation penalties. Those things drive me nuts, whether, oh, yeah. it's, been, uh, whether it's been on offense or on punt. It's just, just mind-boggling to me to have an illegal formation call on punt. But those are the things that just you can't have happen, and, and it makes everything more difficult for you. So if you're saying, what's the one thing they can tweak? Well, be more disciplined in the red zone. And that's some of that may be nerves. Some of that may be simplifying the snap count. Some of that may be just, just saying, screw, we've got to go out here. And if they beat us, they beat us playing in the game, fine. Let's not, let's not over-cute what we want to do. Yep. All right. It is the 5-2 and two Arizona Cardinals on... Sunday afternoon, coming into Cleveland to face the two and five Browns. The Cardinals are averaging almost uh, thirty-three points a game. That can be problematic because the Browns aren't averaging that many points a game. But as I look at this one in real life, I'm uh, I'm not real confident about it. But we are, of course, duty bound here on the Browns Note podcast to choose the Browns to win this game. So I'm going to take the Browns by a score. Uh, well, this being the, the game that it is, let's say it goes to overtime and it's a 34-33 to 33 victory for the Cleveland Browns on a, a, a late Travis Coons field goal. I, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go the insanity way, which is reminiscent of Derek Anderson versus Carson Palmer when he was a Bengal. <laughs> let's, go nuts and say, let's say go nuts and say 41-39. Oh, that would be fun, wouldn't it? All right, I love it. Hey, thanks so much, Pete. That was Pete Smith. You can find him at Pete Smith FS on Twitter. Make sure you check out his work at NFL Spin Zone. He's got one this week talking about the front office, goes in depth about all sorts of angles. I definitely recommend it. Also check out his, he's putting stuff together for the boys at Draft Breakdown, which is always good work. Pete, thank you so much, my friend. Really appreciate it. Always fun. And that'll do it, everybody, for episode 31 of the Browns Note podcast. Please follow the podcast at the Browns Note on Twitter. You can follow me, Ryan Burns, at FTBL Sickness. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week after, hopefully, a Browns victory. Woof. Woof.